Welcome to Poetry Spotlight, presented by the Ohio Poetry Association. I am your host, Jeremy Jusek, and with us today are the founders of the group, Poetry Against Racism and Hate USA, Debbie Allen and Patricia Threshart. Welcome, both of you. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you. So let's talk about the organization first. Um, Where did you two meet, and what was the motivation behind starting the American chapter? Because there's another chapter of this, right? Yes. Yes. Uh, So Patricia and I actually met at a poetry reading in 2019. We had both contributed to uh, the Watershed Journal, which is a regional literary journal based in Pennsylvania, and we met at a reading there. But then not long after that, the pandemic hit, and I moved from Pennsylvania to Ohio. So we really didn't have the opportunity to form any sort of relationship. Um, So then if you jump ahead, then in April of 2021, I was just kind of looking around for some sort of social justice poetry group I could join. Um, And so I went on the internet and put in the search term poets against racism. And the only thing that came up was this um, group in, in the UK, they, it's kind of more of like a network, but they go by poets against racism. And so uh, I, I looked at their website and I looked at their social media posts and so forth and, and watched a two hour virtual poetry event that they did because again, the pandemic was still going on. So they were doing virtual events at that time. And anyway, I was extremely impressed with what they were doing, what they were saying, their poetry and everything. Um, and on the website, it said, you know, um, please come join us, join our network, uh, help us spread the the message. And so I contacted the um, Par UK, UK co-founder, Manjit Sahoda, and, and told him that I would like to do something here in the United States um, on the anniversary of George Floyd's murder, and if I could, do it under the Poets Against Racism banner. And so we talked a little bit via email, and, and he uh, pretty quickly said, let's do it. And so at that point, I, I really only had ties with one poetry community, and that was the Watershed Journal Literary Group in Pennsylvania. Um, and Patricia was the president of their board at that time. So I contacted them and both Patricia and the um, executive editor of the Watershed Journal were very enthusiastic about the idea of doing something. And um, so we all worked together and, and, and then on the first anniversary of the murder of, of George Floyd, we presented a virtual poetry event um, that involved an invited speaker from Clarion University out of Pennsylvania, poets from Ohio, Pennsylvania, and the United Kingdom, and then a panel discussion um, about the poetry and the implications of the poetry and so forth. And um, we were just, it was so powerful. Everyone who was involved with it, everyone who watched it just, you know, was really moved by it and everything. And so Patricia and I just thought, we we don't want to let the momentum from this event lead to nothing. And so we we decided to try to form Poets Against Racism USA. And we we talked to Manjit and he was all for it. And so then we did a lot of planning and preparing and Patricia built our website and then we launched in December of 2021. And uh, that's that's my story of our that's my origin story for us, but Patricia may have more to add to that. Well I think you're right absolutely right about everything and and what everyone can hear in that is how important your role was in all of this i mean really jeremy if it weren't for uh debbie there wouldn't be uh poets against racism uh usa and now of course we've changed our name which i'm sure will come up later to poets against racism and hate and it's really been a wonderful collaboration not just 
around the um, virtual event we now do every year to commemorate uh, George Floyd's death, but also bouncing ideas off of one another and, and Debbie's traveled to the UK and, and, and participated in events there. Um, the, uh, Poets Against Racism goes global. Uh, Debbie spoke there. And we've had other members of the group speak or, or read at events virtually with the UK group. So it's been an exciting collaboration from, from the get-go. And I really give Debbie tremendous credit for, for um, searching them out and then making those connections and making you know, what we have today possible. Well, and I just want to say, Jeremy, I have to give the credit right back to Patricia because it also wouldn't exist without her. She's a phenomenal partner. Oh, thanks. That's wonderful. And and I know you guys have had plenty of discussions about the, the logistics and like event planning and that, but I, I wanted to know if you guys had philosophical discussions about where the line between poetry and you know, the need to be dogmatic versus the need to be artful in the ways that poetry is. Did you, did you guys have that discussion? I'm, or I'm sure more than once. Where did you land on it? Well, it's funny. Gr- yeah, go ahead, Patricia. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> oh, I was going to say that that's a great question, Jeremy, because we do have that discussion. Um, in fact, uh, we had one not that long ago in planning for the most recent uh, uh, anniversary um in this together event, which occurs on the uh, on the day uh, that uh, George Floyd was murdered, with Manjit, because this isn't just about social justice. There's lots of ways to tackle social justice. There's the essay form. There's there's you know there's creative um, there's creative writing. Uh, there's there's artwork. There's there's protest. There's all kinds of ways to tackle social justice. And you know Manjit will say it's very important, and I agree with him that we're not just focused on social justice, but what poetry can bring to, uh, to the understanding of and the impact of the call for social justice. Um, you know, I, I remember him saying, you know, it's not, it's not all about bees, butterflies, unicorns, and fairies. You know, we're really tackling tough issues, but we're harnessing the power of, of poetry to do that. What, what do you say, Debbie? Yeah, I mean, I think we've talked many times about the fact that, I mean, like, you know, I'm involved in other things related to social justice, um, and and even things that are only tangentially related, um, like the League of Women Voters, because I think getting out the vote is important for social change. But the thing about poetry that we talk about is it it can touch people in ways that some other things can't like you know um speeches and stuff even you know I mean they can be powerful but poetry just touches people in a very different way and so I think that's that's the conversation we have is you know mm-hmm. yes we're 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 doing social justice work but we're doing it through this this medium and that's important mm-hmm. cool okay that makes sense I mean you know every medium has a different purpose um and mm-hmm. and I I know I respond better to poetry than essays. <laughs> essays are less fun to read. Mm-hmm. Um, in your blog, you've mentioned you know it's important to expose people who wouldn't otherwise encounter social justice. Um, you know because people that already understand it, you know, if if they have a, a, a schema for institutional racism, say, then you can inform them and you can you can fine tune the things that they know. 
but you're talking, how do you get it into rural areas? How do you get it into, you know, places that are less diverse? So what are your respective philosophies on using the written and spoken word to tackle social justice issues? And what strategies do you employ to get your message out into rural areas? And and, and it's, I know it's still new. Maybe you're, you're, you're thinking of like a next big project that's going to do that. But I'm just curious where you see this going. Maybe, maybe this is the, where do you see yourself in five years question? <laughs> yeah. Well, our mission really speaks, this is, this is Patricia, our mission really speaks to the philosophy we have. We really believe, as we've just touched on, that poetry, it has the power to influence and uh, people through the channeling of emotion, images that are loaded with emotion, concepts loaded with emotion. Um, and so we're using poetry to confront and challenge racism, bigotry, and hate. Um, so, so the philosophy is there. Uh, what are your, but the strategy is evolving. I think we have a very solid start. You know, it's really a multi-pronged strategy already. The first starts with our website. The website is really the hub from which emanates all of our activity. Um, we, we have a featured poem on the website every three or four weeks. We do a blog periodically. And, you know, we, we push the website out uh, to, to uh, convince folks to, to subscribe to it, which of course is free and, and without obligation, but then you get updates from us in email about our activities. And then we encourage our members and subscribers to share um, our content widely. Um, so so that, that is, that's the hub of our strategy. And then we complement that with uh, social, just, um, social justice social media. Um, we have a Facebook page, obviously. Uh, we're on X or Twitter or the, the platform formerly known as Twitter um, and Instagram. And, you know, some of our members really had to push us into those, uh, onto those platforms because I personally, for example, as a webmaster, don't typically use them. But the point was made that we have different people who prefer different platforms. And we may cross, uh, we may touch the same person across multiple, but we may also find, uh, find that follower or that, that supporter through, through one of the platforms. And then, uh, so that's another important part of our strategy. Then the third is virtual events, like the one we've been talking about already. Uh, virtual events really, you know, broaden our footprint far beyond um, where we would otherwise uh, land when we offer our members the mic, the platform, the chance to share their work. Um, and, and we've had virtual events with people from, as Debbie mentioned, the UK, Portugal, Oakland, California, uh, and far beyond. So, so we're very keen on virtual events as a way to reach a myriad of folks because then the people who participate bring their friends on and their friends tell other friends and we start building that community. And um, we also record those virtual events on YouTube. So that's another platform where, where we have a footprint. And then lastly, there's live events. And, and while they're more circumscribed by definition, uh, they happen in a moment in time, they happen in person, they are probably in many ways the most critical to the point you're making, Jeremy, of how do we push in to rural communities that are less served by these diverse voices and organizations that promote those voices. Um, and we've had phenomenal success with this strategy because of a couple of 
key components. One is we uh, use a local sponsor like a library, for example, or a coffee shop or, or an art gallery or some other venue that, that is in place and has a network in that community. And then we use local poets. So even if they're not a member of, of Poets Against Racism and Hate, we reach out to the local poets to make sure the community is represented. And while it's true that most likely people who walk through the door are, are already open to our message, it's very powerful to sit there and hear the witness, that witnessing that goes on through the poetry. And it's also true that we create a buzz in the community. The library, if they're, their, if they're our sponsor, will put, out, put up posters or put out on their social media that they're sponsoring this event. We'll hang up posters in the coffee shops. We'll put, uh, uh, we'll put out a call to the media to cover, um, to cover the event in the local paper. And what that does is creates a buzz. And it tells people who would not be inclined otherwise to walk through that door, listen, this conversation is happening in your community, in Butler, Pennsylvania, in Brockway, Pennsylvania, in Clarion, Pennsylvania, in Franklin, Pennsylvania. I'm just using Western PA as an example. And that really matters. So yeah, that, and that's really our strategy. Right. And then I think that um, another thing that we, well, one thing I do, and I, I know Patricia does it, and I hope our members do it is when we have a virtual event or a live event, but it can be really helpful with a virtual event. You know, I reach out to my whole network of people that I know, and I mm. let them know they can watch this live, you know, they can watch this event happen live or they can watch the recording of it. And, you know, my network of everyone I know, you know, there are people of differing levels of interest in social justice, but I let them know anyway, you know, because mm. If they tune in, they might hear something that, you know, really resonates with them in a way that they didn't expect or something. And I also want to say that in that, I think you mentioned the, or uh, we had a blog post um, kind of about this idea and a couple strategies that, that I, I'm the one who wrote that blog post I talk about in that is, you know, I think it's really important to insert social justice poetry into unexpected places like, um, you know, some strategies we I ident identifying that as, you know, sending a social justice poem to, to a, a journal that wouldn't normally publish that kind of thing. It may not be accepted, but it might. And then you may have reached an audience that wouldn't normally be exposed to that kind of poetry. Or reading social justice poems at like just general poetry readings or arts festivals or other community events, um, you know, like uh, community fairs and that kind of thing. And in fact, I would, I would absolutely love it if Poets Against Racism and Hate USA could be part of OPA's um, annual event that they do at the state fair, because I think that's just the perfect example of how to insert social justice poetry into an unexpected place and reach an audience that, that is, you know, isn't going there necessarily to hear that, but that could be affected by it. So those, I think, um, you know, trying to do that as much as we can too. And that's not quite as easy as as bringing in the audience that's already prepared for it. But I think it's important also. Cool. Yeah. And, and it's not just, um, you know, events in that you, you guys have also partnered with other organizations around the state and you guys have been to several. That's where I met you was uh, Lit Youngstown last year. Yeah. Um, what what kind of uh, early obstacles and growing pains have you encountered? And I realize this is like a different question. You can answer this separately if you'd like, but also what has the response been 
to your events? Well, uh, I'll chime in and say we've been amazed at how quickly we've grown in the first year and a half of, of the organization's existence. We really had no idea, you know, how, how this would take off. And we've been, you know, really humbled in many ways. Uh, by how quickly we've grown, you know, how quickly we started to add members and subscribers to the organization through the website, how quickly and and how enthusiastically uh, poets joined us for, for live events and virtual events that we planned. Um, so I would say the obstacles we've encountered really have to do with two things. One is bandwidth. You know, Jeremy, you're talking to poets against racism and hate <laughs> USA as it comes to administration. We have, you know, we have, uh, you know, nearly 100 members and subscribers when it's all said and done. But Debbie and I are the two folks that really run the website, organize the events. Uh, we meet regularly, setting it uh, together, setting up the strategy and, and pulling together the infrastructure. So bandwidth is an issue. Um, for us, that was a, not an obstacle, but but something we had to, you know, had to acknowledge. And the other the other issue that we we keep front and center is that you know we're not people of color. We are two, you know, white straight women who have adopted this uh, cause and created this organization in the spirit of allyship. And allyship, though, is very different than being the direct witness to some of these social justice causes. So that isn't an obstacle, but it's, it's something we have to acknowledge and, and, and uh, keep, you know, keep ever forefront in our minds because we have to make sure then that at the mic, that at the event, that on the page, we do have the folks who are experiencing the, you know, the, the, the racism, the hate and the bigotry that we're determined to confront directly and that they have a, a voice in their narrative. So those, those are really the two things that we early on had to acknowledge, but our, the response of uh, the community and our poets and members has been really terrific. The, the libraries in particular, the, the venues that have stepped up to, to host us, uh, we've had poets come up and thank us um, at conferences saying how, how much this is needed uh, this type of organization, how how they've been looking for a forum like this, you know, we've had audiences that have come up and in tears, basically, to say how touched they were. So, you know, so it's been really sort of all systems go. Yeah, and also in a kind of a specific challenge that we face that um, I think also touches on how you know, responsive people have been is that um, <clears throat> last year we got some at the end of the year, we got some resistance to the name Poets Against Racism USA, which is like Patricia mentioned, that's how we started. Um, uh, and we, you know, we were concerned about that, but we also have this extremely close connection with Poets Against Racism in the United Kingdom. So we didn't just want to willy nilly change our name. Um, so we actually, um, just uh, started trying to reach out to a variety of people to get input. We talked to, um, we had one-on-one -on -one meetings with poets and activists from different demographic groups, uh, people um, involved in the arts and other ways, and then experts in di diversity, equity, and inclusion. And then, of course, we talked to Manjit, too, um, about what he thought about 
us changing our name. And anyway, uh, we, we took all that in, we took in all those perspectives, um, gave it a whole lot of thought and decided that the best way forward was to change our name. So we started this year, 2023, as Poets Against Racism and Hate USA to kind of better uh, encapsulate our broader viewpoint um, of trying to address all types of uh, bigotry and hate. So that was like, I think that was a challenge that um, it was, it was really neat. It was a growth opportunity for us. It was something we hadn't thought about and it gave us an opportunity to improve our organization, I think. I can see that. And that must be difficult. You know, you're two white poets who are championing racism. And how do you handle those issues of agency? Like, do you have an idea of like, who's warranted to tell stories? What kind of stories are being told? How do you parse that out when you're planning an event? What are, what kind of discussions do you have? Yeah, we, we do talk about it. Um, you know, and early on, uh, a lot of, the, and really to this day, but a lot of our members are not necessarily poets from uh, marginalized, historically marginalized groups. Um, so when we do an event, uh, we reach out to our membership, uh, in addition to local poets. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of our members are like us. They're just, they're people who are white, um, cis, straight, but they care. And so, you know, a lot of times our events are populated uh, in part with those kind of people. But, you know, we've learned some things we've learned are the idea of, you know, if we if we're doing an event focused on racism, you know, to to have black poets, you know, lead off the event, close out the event. So their voices are in the most important points of the event. Um, so things like that, that that we try to do, we um you know, we've also done a lot of talking, uh, just private conversations with poets of color, uh, trans poets, et cetera, to just help us inform ourselves about, you know, what, how should we be handling this? Yeah. And I also think uh, I gave a, a lecture recently to um, a small but, but opinionated group of people in a a rural town not not far north from me here in the Pennsylvania wilds, and my audience was uh, diverse, and um, you know, so it was a great opportunity for me to have a sounding board about this this notion of representation, this notion of having, you know, multiple voices at the mics and making sure that people from those historically marginalized communities have a voice, have a part of this narrative. It's their narrative in many ways. But we also agreed how important it is to have, for example, a white cis male stand up and talk about how he lived his life. And we have one poet in particular who has a, a long and excellent poem about this journey, how he became woke, you know, how it suddenly dawned on him that he was privileged just in what he didn't have to deal with. And and so that's the voice that's going to reach other people like him. You know, you usually don't have to convince, you know, historically marginalized uh, community members that they're marginalized, but you do often have to convince uh, the folks that haven't had to deal with these issues that they are in fact privileged. Yeah, yeah I mean, we we by, we definitely think both both perspectives are important, and and you know our our fellow co-founder in the UK has, you know, has said, you know, at the point at which you only have 
Black poets or trans poets standing up for the problem, speaking out about the problem, and you don't have straight people and white people chiming in too, you've, you've really lost the battle. It has to be all of us. As our, as our May 25th event tagline is, it has to be all of us in this together. So all the perspectives we think are important. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I know that um, it, it, was, it was weird going to college for the first time because I came from a rural area and my mom, my family was progressive and ostensibly, you know, tried to do the right thing. But when you have a singular lifestyle where everybody around you is the same and you, it's, it's really, there's a lot of stuff that you can't conceptualize until you actually expose yourself to other people. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Okay, um, so I want to introduce Debbie Allen. Uh, Debbie is a writer-editor who acquired a passion for poetry while working on literature programs in the field of educational publishing. She co-founded Poets Against Racism and Hate USA and headlined at Poets Against Racism Goes Global during the 2022 Nottingham Poetry Festival. Debbie has served as an associate poetry editor for Poets Reading the News, a committee chair for the OPA, and a board member for the Watershed Journal Literary Group. Her poetry is forthcoming or has appeared in various journals and collections, including Common Threads, Tobacco Literary Arts Journal, Mad as Hell, an anthology of angry poetry, and Read and Write Poetry. Much of Debbie's published work tends toward response to injustices. And Debbie, do you have a poem you'd like to share with us? <laughs> yeah, I will share a poem. You actually uh, helped me pick this poem to read. I wasn't sure what to read, but you suggested I... I, I read this poem, and I, I actually want to say something related to this poem. Um, the poem I'm going to read, um, it's titled Strange Fruit Still, and I just, uh, when I was, uh, when the Buffalo shooting happened, I was in the process of studying the poem Strange Fruit because of a personal issue that had arisen uh, in my life, and the Buffalo shooting happened, and and so anyway, I had that in my uh, in my mind at the time that the poem Strange Fruit was written by a white Jewish poet um, named Abel Maripol, who was a teacher in New York City, and he wrote it in response to lynchings that were occurring in the 30s um, across the country. And then he set it to music um, and performed it as a protest song. And then, of course, Billie Holiday made the rendition that people know. But I just thought at the time the Buffalo uh, shooting happened, I thought, you know, you know, that that what's what's happening is different but it's but it's also the same and so that's that's what led me to take inspiration from his work so um i i i, I like to talk about that because i think that poem that he wrote it was th three stanzas of four lines each and it actually had an impact on the public and that's what we hope and think can happen at par usa we think that's what poetry can do so that's why i like to tell the story of that particular poem that he wrote all those years ago um, okay, so this is Strange Fruit Still after Abel Miracle. Soundless, unseen mobs bear gore, blood in the pew and blood on the door, black bodies heaped on pitted tile, strange fruits strewn in a grocery aisle. Commonplace calm, breaths innocence, shattered, shuddered by circumstance, a smile of friendship, a child at play. Then sudden the sound of bullet spray. Here is fruit strange only when dropped, only when blighted by what must be stopped, only when found bruised, crushed, and peeled. Here is hatred's harvested yield. 
you know, mm. it, yeah, I, I love your poetry. It often involves transformation. Like there's, there's, and it, it comes in from different, different angles too. It could be empowerment and courage or like, like you have a poem on say, saying something with, I, which I think is very much an empowerment piece, or it could be metaphorical, like a garden of girlness. Um, and I think it really works well for the type of poetry that you write, the, your voice. Um, and I was hoping you could talk ab about that a little more. It's funny you say that about it being transformational because I hadn't thought about that. And so now that you say that, um, <laughs> I, I, I have to think that the reason behind it, it's not something I do intentionally, I don't think, but I think the reason behind it is that um, perhaps very naively, I'm an extremely optimistic person. And so I think maybe I'm wanting in those poems that do have a transformational quality to convey a hopefulness, I guess. Um, but I also think like in, in poems that, you know, just end, you know, the whole way through, they're dark. They're just about the dark things that are happening. I actually think there's optimism behind those too, because, um, you know, I, I think, I just think there's optimism behind any social justice poetry because there's no, we wouldn't be writing it if we didn't think there was, that it had the potential to cause change. And so um, I don't do that transformational quality purposely, but I think it comes from who I am and just my eternal optimism and thinking that things can get better. And it's, you know, um, on saying something, you know, I mean, that poem is based in truth. You, you know, it's about, the fact that there are people out there who think things only because they haven't really necessarily heard otherwise. And so when they hear it, they're like, oh, okay, I didn't know that, you know, I didn't see that. So I, I, I think there is um, just a hopefulness, I guess, conveyed in that kind of poem. How do you stay positive when you're dealing with bitter injustices? Because I get angry. And when I go to write poems, um, I, I do you know, local stuff for the home, you know, homeless and not like local yeah. nonprofits. I'll write for them. And we do um, this, this other group I'm a part of, we, we do so. But, but the point is I get upset. And when I try to write about it, I have a hard time not being pessimistic. How do you, how do you stay hopeful? I need help. Yeah. Well, uh, for one thing, like, I think I just conveyed, it's, it's my temperament um, to be optimistic. It's just, I feel like I was born that way, but I have to say that I have said to people recently, I sometimes I feel like I'm losing my happy-go-lucky and it's because of that, what you're talking about, all the horrible things that we're dealing with as social justice poets or, you know, just people in this world. Um, so, but I think my hope, my optimism comes from the, that if you look around, you, you see a lot of, of people loving each other, you know, people helping each other. And one thing that aggravates me is I, I see in the general, like if I'm in an airplane, I see people helping each other. Uh, it doesn't matter what their race is or anything else. They're helping each other. And then I think, why, you know, I, I think I, maybe that, that leads me to the optimism. It's like, okay, if that can happen in this little microcosm, maybe there's hope that even if those two people were to get to know each other or whatever, they could still have this pleasant, helpful relationship with each other. So I do think uh, again, I, I really am um, perhaps Pollyannish, but I just I think that there is hope, and I and I think that you know that's all we can do is try to communicate a message and hope that it lands and 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 believe that it it is landing. Um, so I have 
I don't know if that helps or not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to take a page out of your book because that's more positive <laughs> than how I go about it. <laughs> so let's talk about the Underground Railroad Project. This is a massive multi-year, multi-group project, and you're coordinating it in part with the Ohio Poetry Association's leadership team. And so start simply, What's what inspired the project and what is its scope? Okay. Yes. So I'm very excited to talk about the project. Um, the project is the brainchild of Chuck Sammons, the immediate past president of OPA. And for several years, uh, Chuck had wanted to find a way for OPA to respond to the rash of racist violence that was occurring, not just in Ohio, but across the country. And I'm talking you know, before the pandemic, before George Floyd, you know, Chuck had this idea. And he it kind of decided that one way to um, deal with this, to approach this matter, would be to conduct a series of poetry readings at underground railroad sites around the state. He thought that such readings could serve as a reminder that Ohio was on the right side of history during the Civil War, you know, that it was a Union state that was against the evils of slavery and, and oppression of African Americans. Um, so he had this idea. And at the same time, he knew that this project he envisioned was going to be a major undertaking that was going to require, you know, time, planning, volunteer hours, et cetera. So at the same time that that was going on in Chuck's mind, um, Patricia and I were talking about, you know, starting PAR USA. And I, um, I had the opportunity to, um, well, I went up to Suzanne Muller, the, the vice president of OPA um, at the 2021 Lit Youngstown Fall Literary Festival and told her that we were thinking about this this organization. And she was very supportive of it and said, you know, get in touch when you get it going. And then um, a little bit later, I met Ricky Santer and became, a, you know, uh, I was involved in Lit Youngstown, actually Lit Youngstown activities with Ricky and got to know her. She's the, another vice president of OPA. So anyway, all those connections led OPA to invite our USA to um, be a part of this project. Um, and we are thrilled that they did. We were like, yes, please. Thank you very much for letting us do this. And, and so then from there, our two groups last November, uh, Par U, uh, you know, a little team from Par USA and OPA went down to the National Underground Railroad Freedom Center Museum in Cincinnati to just, you know, let them know what we were thinking. And then they became the third collaborator. Um, and they actually added a component uh, uh, which and I'll talk about the the scope in a second. So they so it was really exciting to get them on board too. I mean that's they're one of the finest museums in the country. So and obviously right on target. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. very that it's is, awesome. that's really cool. And then the the scope. Um, so it's the project now has two phases. There are going to be some events that are going to occur next month um, at the Freedom Center. Uh, we're going to take part in their celebration of International Underground Railroad Month. And then in 2024, we will do um, the series of poetry readings in underground railroad sites. So that's the, the beginning, the origins and the scope of the project. Fantastic. Um, in, in going in, I'm sure you had specific goals in terms of the ideas and perspectives or, or just basic facts that you thought that people should know. Um, how did you, what, what, what things did you identify as important to get across and how are you going to convey Ohio's relationship with history or, or with racism? And it's, you know, what brought us here now and how things are going now? Yeah, well, one thing we want to do with the project is have poets who are involved with the project read um, both historic poetry 
uh, and then current day social justice poetry. So, I mean, there's, I, you know, uh, there's a lot in Ohio to be proud of when it comes to the Underground Railroad. Um, it's, it was um, one of the most important states for the Underground Railroad. It had 3,000 miles in its Underground Railroad network, which is the most of any state. Um, over half of the freedom seekers coming north came through Ohio. So, uh, you know, the abolitionists who, who, who worked on the Underground Railroad, um, yeah, they were very courageous. They, they you know, could face pen legal penalties or, you know, be ostracized by their neighbors, et cetera. So that's all important for Ohioans to know and something to be proud of. But at the same time, you know, Ohio's historical relationship with race isn't all peaches and cream. I mean, at the time of the Underground Railroad, about half the state was pro-slavery. We had settlers who had come from the north, uh, New England area, and then settlers had, who had come from southern states like West Virginia. And so really about half of the state was about half and half. And the Constitution, uh, you know, it, it, it banned Blacks from voting, from testifying against whites, from benefiting from certain um, government programs and so forth. Uh, so there was a lot of structural racism right from the get-go in Ohio. And, you know, that's continuing today. Like recently, cities like Columbus and Cleveland have actually come out and officially said, you know, that that the uh, health disparities that exist are because of historic structural racism. Um, so we're trying to, you know, um, we want to, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of positive to be conveyed. Um, and the fact that, the, you know, the Underground Railroad sites that we're going to visit in 2024, the fact that they are valued, you know, that's important in and of itself, that, that we as a state value them. Um, so having the poetry at those places helps convey a positive message. But at the same time, the poetry itself may, in many cases, convey the message that we still have a lot of work to do. Yeah. And that's a that that's a an important part of being somebody who does love their country and does love it, being able to criticize it and saying these are problems that we need to fix, you know, we and we should. Yeah. Because because of how much we care. Um so you have a string of you you have a, uh, several events that are tied to this on this project and they're about to start unfolding now. Which which events can listeners look forward to? Well, it's yeah, we are so excited about it. So the events are coming up soon. Um, the the phase one, which is what's happening this year, is this is the events that are happening at the Freedom Center in September. So on September tenth. OPA and Part USA will be part of the Freedom Center's Fifth Third Community Day, which they have these days periodically, and there's free admission to the museum and all the events are free. So OPA and Part USA will share an exhibitor table uh, at the event where we'll have a little um, poetry uh, activity for children at that table in addition to giving out information. Um, Patricia and I will be conducting two sessions of the Par USA Social Justice Poetry Workshop that day on September 10th. Um, and then we'll cap off the day with a poetry reading and at the Freedom Center. And that reading will be emceed by Cincinnati's Mo Poetry Phillips, and it will feature several local poets, including Cincinnati Poet Laureate Yali Soweta Kamara and others. Um, and then on September 8th, the Friday before those Sunday events, we are going to have pairs of poets on during the lunch hour on that Friday at, on certain Cincinnati street corners who will be reciting historic poetry, 
current day social justice poetry and handing out flyers about the Sunday event. So it'll be both a way to expose the public to poetry, social justice poetry, and also to promote the Sunday event. So that's that's what's happening this year. And I, I, I have to pause here and just say, I just want to give a huge shout out to Mo Poetry Phillips and OPA's Ricky Santer for pulling together these two poets, the, the poets who will be reading the, that we're going to have, I think, 10 poets on the street corners of Cincinnati, and then another six or so at the Freedom Center reading. And it has been a major undertaking <laughs> to get all those schedules aligned. And so I'm very, I'm very pleased with the work they've done. And then I, people can also start looking forward to 2024. We're still in the planning stage. We're still identifying sites, but I'm thinking, Jeremy, it would be a great idea to have somebody back on once we've gotten those, uh, nail down and have somebody from the team come on and talk about that um, because it really is going to be so cool. It's going to be all over the state of Ohio. So people all over the state can, can attend the events and everything. So we're very excited about all of it. Awesome. Yeah. I'm for it. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it'll be going on next year, so yeah. it, would, it would make sense. Yeah. Um, so let's, what about some of the other uh, poetry against racism and hate uh, events? What's on the calendar? What are your future plans besides the Underground Railroad? What do you have coming on next year? Yeah, we, um, well, of course, as Debbie said, uh, the collaboration with the Freedom Center and OPA for this whistle stop tour is really phenomenal and, and takes, is going to take a, a lot of our attention and, and bandwidth. But, but we have a number of other events slotted in um, individually and collectively, I am going to continue the uh, lecture on uh, using social justice poetry to confront social justice issues in uh, my corner of northwestern Pennsylvania. I have a lecture in September on on that, and um, it's likely we will also be doing a workshop uh, in northwestern Pennsylvania. The same workshop, incidentally, that we're offering during the um, September 10th event that Debbie mentioned. Um, and then back in Ohio, uh, we are participating on October 4th in the Ohio Nonviolence Week um, series of events on October 4th, Speak Your Peace, spoken word event from 6 to 8 p.m. at the Hopewell Theater in Youngstown. And we're really excited about that as well because we've partnered with the theater and with the public library and the committee, the Ohio Nonviolence Week Committee to uh, sponsor a spoken word event that features students in grades seven to 12. Um, you know, really an, an important uh, effort on our part to continue to bring this narrative, this mission out um, to the community. Um, and so that that's going to be a lot of fun. We've got some prizes for the winners, including some books by some of our poets. And uh, Debbie, I think you've really done a terrific job teaming up on that event. Um, so uh, the and the last thing I'll mention is, you know, we're collaborating with um, an interfaith clergy group in Northwestern Pennsylvania to talk about how we can uh, uh, work with them to, to bring our message to their communities, to their congregate, congregants, to their participants. And this, as it, when I say interfaith, I mean they're across the board. There's a, you know, there's um, a mosque, a, a, a synagogue, a, a number of different churches involved in this initiative. And we're talking about doing an event probably early next year, as well as celebrating with them uh, on Juneteenth. 
and there'll be more. You know, this is the amazing thing about our experience since we've started this group that, you know, we keep getting knocks at the door. Yeah, I, I just want to say a little bit more about the oh, a couple of things, if that's okay. Um, the the clergy group, I'm I'm really excited about that. I I actually had a conversation with Karen Scott from OPA quite some time ago, and she mentioned something about you know her church having an anti racism committee or or group or something like that. And I thought, wow, yes, churches, of course, that's that's a great place for us to be. And so then. Uh, then just it sort of fell into our lap, this um, interfaith clergy group. And so I'm really excited about that. Um, I think it's a great partnership. And I, I also want to say a little bit, just a smidgen more about the Ohio Nonviolence Week. That that event is, um, is put on by um, Mahoning Valley Sojourn to the Past. It's a really important social justice group that takes, takes students to the South to see civil rights um, uh, locations and so forth, and then they do this Ohio Nonviolence Week every every year. And I feel really fortunate that we're able to be a part of it this year. Um, and then I, I actually want to say a couple other things. They aren't events, but there's some things that we have cooking. Um, we just we just closed in a, our first acrostic poetry contest. We had a piece of art that uh, someone who participated in our very first um, uh, George Floyd event, our May 25th event. She created this piece of art, and we've had you know submitters respond to it and so we're going to be choosing the winner and announcing the winner soon for that and then the other thing that we're trying to do um is um find ways to uh well i i i've been to an event here in youngstown and i'm sure this kind of thing happens in other places it's a it's a, a regular event a regular poetry reading and uh it's called snaps only and and most of the poets who perform at the event are African-American, most of the people in the audience are African-American. I've been a few times. And when I've talked to people there, it's they don't seem to have uh, sometimes the information about like local literary groups or literary festivals. It's it's not getting communicated. So we're thinking that maybe one way to kind of to broaden diversity within the community of poetry um, is to maybe try to offer a scholarship to literary festivals to someone from a historically marginalized community. So um, we're, we're exploring that and hoping that to, um, to be able to do something with that sometimes. So those are a few other things that we have going on that aren't exactly events, but. Yeah, no, those are very exciting. That's very exciting. That's a really good idea too. Um, like e even if someone could go to a festival and make connections, you know, that means, yeah. you know, that can change a lot. Yeah. Um, Okay, I'd like to introduce Patricia now. Uh, <laughs> Patricia Threshart writes poetry and historical nonfiction. Her fourth and latest book of poems, Inspired by Their Voices, Poems from Underground Railroad Testimonies, was put out by Mammoth Books. She is the co-editor of the blog and anthology series for North-South Appalachia. Her work was included in the anthology of Ohio Appalachian Voices, I Thought I Heard a Cardinal Sing, and in the Women of Appalachia Speaks series. Her narrative nonfiction book, Cursed, The Life and Tragic Death of Marion Alsobrook Stallman, was published in December 2021 by Adelaide Books. Patricia, thank you for joining us, and could you please share, us, share a poem? I will. I will. Thanks for asking. I'm actually going to read the poem that is currently up on our website. It's our featured poem. Uh, this month. Um, and I wrote it um, in a style that I hope is somewhat reflective of, you know, the, the voice that's often adopted by poets writing about justice, uh, you know, sort of honoring those voices 
um, and, and you know, I think you'll, you'll hear what I mean. Um, it's called Be It Resolved for Poets Writing About Justice. As it can be said that writing can be revolt or revolve around a revolution of ideation or evolve to a higher purpose proposed to advance ideas of greatness or involve the best of human feeling, solve sweeping problems of existence, dissolve distance or division in a kitchen or a mind or even across a country, absolve the worst of us, excuse us, even abuse us, scar us with memory we'd rather forget, mar the least of us, evolve stories of causes lost but not done, be it resolved, therefore, that resolve is not the answer. That resolve is just the start. That the heart must sing the song of what we can be, drawn by the steadfast march of beauty we see in the eyes of those we once found appalling, if only we look. We resolve to write the new song of a nation involved in the healing of a fractured history we share, whether we want to or not, writing the new anthem of our lives. Wow. That's cool. That's excellent. Um, you know, I, what I like about your work is because you, you know, your essay, your essays are great and, and you, you come from Appalachia and you're connected to its communities. Um, you, you publish through their journals and you're, you're involved with other writers from that area. And you have this poem called Who Are We, Pittsburgh? And I like it because it identifies, but it also demands accountability from the people who live there. You know, there's, and you, you, you go through some of the issues. So how do you translate that sense of identity into your work with this organization, but also your poetry? Uh, well, that poem, uh, particularly, I wrote after, uh, you know, the... Um, massacre at Tree of Life. Pittsburgh reeled from that event, that horrific, you know, penultimate act of anti-Semitism, and in a neighborhood that was known really for its tolerance, for its diversity. And my daughter actually were, lived just a few blocks away from the synagogue. And, you know, it, it brought to the fore how vulnerable and fragile we are, um, even as we think that we live in diverse and tolerant neighborhoods. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, it, it's exactly that. It's by being a member of this community that, uh, you know, has seen that hatred in its midst that, that I'm demanding that accountability. Um, and, you know, I'm not originally from Appalachia or Appalachia, I guess it depends <laughs> on how you say it, um, but I've been here for decades. And that's been an interesting experience for me, um, you know, immersing myself in, in the community and, and the challenges that it has and the nuances between Southern Appalachia, Central Appalachia, Northern Appalachia, Pittsburgh, the Paris of Appalachia, and trying to understand you know, what that means. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I like your point that I'm, I'm demanding that accountability and, and I'm not the only voice that does that. 
certainly Pittsburgh in particular has some phenomenal um, organizations that you know that that operate um, to to pull down the barriers that create otherness. City of Asylum comes to mind. So all of that translates to poets against racism and hate. I'm not actually primarily a social justice poet. I do write a lot about those birds and bees and butterflies <laughs> that we mentioned at the beginning of this uh, podcast, but uh, because I live immersed in nature first and foremost. But when I write um, about um, social justice issues and and when I write about um, you know these these injustices permeating the Northern Appalachian community, I get I get very fervent, as you can hear. Um, so that's how it translates, you know, this notion that I'm a member of this community, I'm accountable, and need to hold others accountable as well. Sure. Okay. And and you you have this uh, this this project of narrative nonfiction novels that you're working on, and I want to highlight that that too. Um, and so, how did that project begin, and, and what do you want to accomplish with it by the time it's done? Oh, yeah, great question. I do love writing historical nonfiction. I love the research associated with it. I love the discovery of what uh, the world was like then. Um, and uh, what I look for are historical figures who have been forgotten, who were momentarily famous. I guess Andy Warhol's 15 minutes of fame worked back then too, and uh, have been completely forgotten by history, but their lives Still have a lesson for us. Um, and so uh, my love of history evolved to my love of research and then my love of storytelling and all of that came together. So the, the book you mentioned when you introduced me is the story of a woman who was married to someone from my neck of the woods here. Uh, she was married uh, to, um, you know, to a, an odd sort of guy here up in Brookville, Pennsylvania. And I don't want to take a lot of time talking about it. But her life intersected with some major upheavals in American history, particularly around the American Medical Association and faith healing. And she became you know, really a victim of a cult um, and died um, at a very young age, leaving little children behind. So, so her story moved me. But from there, I've moved on. I have a couple of books in the queue. Um, and as I mentioned, each of these stories um, remind us of what we've been through in the past and remind us of what we are still dealing with in the present. Okay, excellent. Cool. And how do you stay hopeful? I know I asked Debbie this, but I'm, I'm curious what you have to say. Yeah, I, I really love that question and I love Debbie's answer. But I guess really the, the, the words that come to my mind is what's the alternative? I'm certainly too darn stubborn to give up um, because you know that's an awfully bleak notion to just say, well, we can't do anything about this and I'm tired and I keep beating my head against the wall. And so, you know, I think it's stubbornness uh, and I think it's this inherent belief that if we, you know, if we're consistent in delivering uh, uh, the message in this emotive way, in this in this very human way, it will resonate because I do believe in the in the best of human in uh, human spirit, um, and uh, you know history has shown not just 
uh, what the, the evil that human nature can do, but also the greatness that's within each of us. So I think that's really my best answer. That's a great answer. No, I love it. <laughs> Jeremy, Patricia just made me think of something. Um, you know, I think if we, if our, if, if, a, if social justice poetry, it, it's not going to be one of these things that causes sweeping changes, but you've got to start somewhere. And, and if one individual is changed by one line in a poem in some way, then it's worth it. You know, it's worth staying optimistic and continuing to do it, you know, because even if you only make little change, you've made change. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love that as a, <laughs> what's the alternative? That's a great, that's a great thing to ask yourself is like, what would I be doing otherwise? Nothing. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so to open it, this back up to kind of both of you, um, let's discuss some concepts around the organization and your, 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 your outlooks. Uh, first, privilege. What is it in your own words? Well, I'll start um, and, and say, you know, I, I would characterize myself as still a student of this concept because I'm, you know, I had no idea I even was privileged until, frankly, the murder of George Floyd kicked off a number of opportunities for people like me it, it, through my employer at the time, for one thing. To, to go to workshops, read books, and learn about this notion of privilege. Um, and uh, I certainly uh, learned a lot in a very short period of time. Because, you know, a lot of times, Jeremy, when you bring up the notion of privilege to uh, someone who is part of the majority, who is not a member of a community that has been marginalized, they start talking about all the hardships they went through. Wait a minute, what are you talking about? My mother was a single mom and she worked two jobs and I lived in, you know, and there's a whole long list of how they had to really pull themselves up from their bootstraps with their bootstraps out of, you know, uh, situations that they certainly didn't consider to be privileged. And uh, all of that's true. But what they didn't have to deal with is what really made them privileged. It's that they didn't have to deal with the additional detriment of being from a historically marginalized community, a person of color. You know, and, and I had a, a very close friend who really brought this home to me. Um, it's about the conversations you didn't have to have with your children or you know, with your spouse. Um, and she told me the story about when George Floyd was murdered She's African-American. Her husband is too. These are professional people living in Houston in a, you know, in a uh, privileged community from the, an economic perspective, very, you know, very successful uh, economically. But their son, uh, you know, young black man was uh, in college in Washington, D.C. And when the civil uh, unrest began, they were in such a quandary about getting him home. And she said to me, look, I may have to take some time off from work. We're debating which of us should go and drive him home. He can't drive home alone. Young black male cannot drive home during this time from Washington D.C. to to their uh, you know their home in Texas. And which should it be? Should it be my husband? Well, then there's two black males in the car versus me, uh, a woman. That's the kind of conversation no white person ever had to have. And that, to me is what really we're talking about here. The privilege of not having to worry about things like that. 
Okay. Yeah, that's very similar to how I characterize my privilege. And the way I think of it is just this understanding I have that there are so many things I never, ever have to think about. I just don't have to mm -hmm. think about things. I go on with my life and everything's fine. And I'm not constantly having to have a conversation with, if I had children, have a conversation with them or worry about, you know, if my tail lights out or whatever. Um, and so I think that, that to me is kind of the, just sums it up is I don't have to worry about things. Um, and I, we have actually, a, I, we have a poem um, that was published on our featured poem page. that really gets at that point. It's called what Felicia says, and it's by Johnny McIntyre. And I'd love everybody to go to our featured poem archive and read that poem because it, it's exactly what we're talking about here. And then we actually, have, we have a couple other really great um, featured poems that address privilege. One, um, Patricia already alluded to, it's um, Gerard Turnisall's As I Turned I Woke. And then the other one is uh, a poem by Heather Martin called That One Poem Was Bullshit. And um, if it'd be okay, I'd like to, I'd like to read the last four lines of Heather's poem because I just I love them. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Yeah, okay. Absolutely. All right. Um, okay. I am an eggshell shard, safely trapped in the viscous white, slipping easily left, right, eluding jabbing fingers. Oh, could, could you please read the whole poem? Uh, yes, I would love to, to read that poem in its entirety. That one poem was bullshit by Heather Martin. Who was I to write a poem about Black lives, as if living in a gentrified gap among West Side streets meant I had earned the right to take images, make assumptions, bestow observations in my stanzas, written to convey some deep understanding or familiarity. I am an eggshell shard, safely trapped in the viscous white, slipping easily left, right, eluding jabbing fingers. I'm 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 glad I'm, I'm glad I got to hear the whole thing. Um, yeah, definitely go check out their website. Go see the the poems and stuff that they post. They have great content, and I recommend the blog too. There's a lot of really thoughtful posts on there. That were it was enjoyable to read. Um, next con the next concept institutional racism because I think this is an important one. I mean it's but it, it's it's really often misunderstood and usually by the people that shouldn't be misunderstood. <laughs> um. Mm. A lot of people think that it's, you know, something overt, like it's it's saying a slur or like calling somebody out or like doing a blatantly bigoted thing. But institutional racism is more insidious than that. And a lot of America is really structured. It saturates how we live our lives. Um, so I was hoping you could offer some additional perspective and talk about how you can reach people who don't have that schema in their head. Yeah, that's such a, a great question um, and so important because as soon as you start talking about racism and privilege and white and black, white people get defensive and they tend to personalize it. I, I'm colorblind. I don't know how many times I've heard someone say that. I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not racist. I have a black friend. Um, or they'll say, my people weren't in this country when there was slavery. They came after the war. You know, and you hear all of that without understanding and what they need to understand and what we need to convey. And, and we need to find those ways to do that is 
it, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a systemic racism that's ingrained in our laws and institutional practices, even still in some state constitutions uh, and certainly present uh, in, in statuary and, and other public, public forums. And by being citizens of this country, we're complicit, whether our ancestors were here in 1760 or 1860 or, or 1890 were complicit. And, and that's, the, that's the notion that we need to get across. And, and what I try to do uh, is I, I write, m most of my social, social justice writing is from the standpoint of history, uh, just to remind everyone that we share this history. This is the history of the United States of America, and you are a citizen of this country. And we need to look for ways that, that, uh, that where racism is ingrained and through voting, through voices, through, uh, through, our, um, you know, through our lives, uh, fight to change that. So it's not a matter of whether you're colorblind or not, or whether you use racial slurs, or whether you have friends who are people of color. It's about those, those broader issues. Um, and I have to say, one of the books that really impacted me, and I, I want to mention it here, um, is the book Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. It is a phenomenal book and it op opens even the most sympathetic um, you know, eyes to how incredibly ingrained this, this notion of uh, institutional racism is. Um, and I think it's really important to read because you also hear people talk about you know, uh, examples of where, uh, you know, African-Americans perpetrate, a, you know, uh, 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 perpetrate injustice on other African-Americans, not understanding that those folks are operating within that same institutionalized environment. They're doing their job in the context of systemic racism and in the context of, of the caste system that she describes in the book. Yeah, that book is, I, I've read that one. That one's really good because she describes that there's these mm. eight pillars that prop up mm -hmm. the caste system in, in the United States. And she goes over all eight and she links it to other stratified societies throughout history that mm -hmm. you know, are adjacent. It's highly recommend. Yeah, I think mm -hmm. one of the significant things that I find is, is I think maybe what you were getting at, Jeremy, that it seems like a lot of people just they don't connect historic racism with current circumstances like higher rates of poverty or crime uh, in black neighborhoods or the fact that we have black neighborhoods and white neighborhoods. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. um, they they want to they want to blame black people, uh, for example, for issues that occur in predominantly black neighborhoods. And they haven't considered that, that those circumstances exists because of historical and structural racism that's related to things like lack of opportunity to build wealth, racist government policies related to home loans, um, mm -hmm. covenants that precluded certain people from living in certain neighborhoods, unequitable incarceration rates, and then the generational cycles of crime that those create, lower rates of job creation in and near poorer neighborhoods, lack of transportation options for getting to jobs. I mean, there's it's on and on, these structural reasons why things happen uh, the way they do. And it's, and yet I think a lot of, it, I think it's kind of easy for some people to just say, 
well, they've brought those problems on themselves or those that's their fault that that's happening. But if you really look, you know, at history, like if you look at how black and white neighborhoods came to be, we, we weren't always like this, you know, then you start understanding, well, okay, I, I see it's been one thing after another. And that's what, and it's, it's led to this, but I, it, going back to my, my poem on saying something, I do think that for these people who aren't necessarily defensive, but they just aren't aware, you know, they just aren't aware. I think if you can have an opportunity to, to talk to someone like that, um, you can, and you educate yourself first, then you can raise issues that they don't know about. And then it's like, oh, okay, you know, I did not know that. I'll mm-hmm. go into that more. I mean, I think maybe going back to my <laughs> eternal optimism, but I, you know, I think there's a way to reach people um, or write a social justice poem about these things, you know? So I think um, that, that structural racism uh, or responses to structural racism have a lot of different aspects to them. And I think simple lack of awareness is one of them, but maybe one of the easier ones to be aware of. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, what about accepting that you still have work to do? So I think, I think this is one that comes up sometimes where someone's like, well, I'm now woke or I've, I've woken up to it. You know, they, like they've, they've adopted this idea that yes, I'm against racism and I'm going to think about it that way. But how do you approach someone who may not realize that they still have some ways to go and the, the defensiveness that often comes up with <laughs> challenging that sometimes? Well, I actually think our events, for example, are, a great place to get at that because like we've talked about a lot of the people who come to our events are people pro social justice you know anti racism anti trans hate etc but they're hearing things in the poems at those events that they haven't thought about so it's a way for them to continue to grow in their you know wokeness or however you want to characterize it but i think that's that's one way is if you know through poetry i mean i don't want to just you know, keep saying that, but I think it's really important because the beauty of that audience is they're already open to the idea. They may not know they have more to learn and more growth to undertake, but once they hear, you know, poetry, like, like, like what's read at some of our events, they can't help but understand they have more work to do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I would agree with that. I mean, I, your, your readings always are inspirational and they bring you you guys do a, you both of you do a great job of bringing in a, divi- a diverse roster uh so that way the perspectives that you're getting are varied and i've always learned something you know um okay my last question is for both of you and who are some of the poets that you admire that are involved in social justice patricia do you want to i can go uh well, yeah, well you know- Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Well, for one thing, I mean, this sounds, I don't mean for this to sound whatever it may sound, but frankly, I admire the poets who we publish on our website who are just your average, you know, everyday person, not someone famous who's, who's so invested in this situation that they are writing poetry about it and they are reading poetry about it and they want their poetry to be out there so that's one thing I mean you know I I, you know historic poets who who have written against social justice um 
you know, Langston Hughes and, and Nikki Giovanni and so forth. Of course, I, I love those poets, but I, I think some credit needs to be given to just the average Joe poet who, who cares enough to, to take this on, I think. And Ohio has some phenomenal social justice poets. Um, Cortez Harris is a, is a great example. I am very enamored of uh, the work of Ross Gay. Um, for example, he's, he's one of my current favorites. I always have a problem with questions that use the word favorite, Jeremy, because it's so hard to choose um, when you have such a, such a wealth of, of uh, voices to, to draw from. Um, and then, you know, I really uh, love Toni Morrison in particular and Rita Dove, um, some of the female voices that are so important uh, to hear to hear from. So uh, it, that's a, a, you know, that's a wonderful uh, uh, question to ask because I hope it sparks um, some reading uh, by your, by your audience. And there's some great anthologies and collections um, to, to, to tap when, you know, when they're interested in doing so. Excellent. Excellent. Um, well, before we wrap up, is there anything that either of you wanted to say or get out there that we may not have covered yet? I don't think so. Well, thank you. No, thank you for having us. Certainly uh, giving us this chance to talk about the organization. And, uh, uh, you know, I'd like to encourage anyone listening to, uh, to think about becoming a subscriber to the website. There's no fee. There's no obligation. We keep your information private you you know we don't spam you with a lot of emails but when there's a new blog when there's a featured poet uh or when we have an event or an opportunity to volunteer or become involved you'll get an email from us which you can un unsubscribe from anytime you want and uh you know it's just a way to keep your finger on the pulse of the work we're doing uh if you're a poet certainly we'd love to have you join us and we give, you know, our mission is to give your voice uh, a broader, a, a broader forum. So, you know, I'd just like to encourage everyone to consider visiting the website and and, and joining us. Excellent. Yeah, and ev and everyone who can, uh, who you know, is in, within distance, please come to the September tenth event at the at the Freedom Center. Those are going to be awesome. And. Uh, Patricia mentioned volunteers. We do. We would love to have some people volunteer to work at the table. Um, and you, you know, it's a great opportunity to just get to see the Freedom Center, which is incredible, and get to to listen to the uh, reading and so forth. So, yeah, I encourage everyone mm -hmm. who can make it to the September tenth uh, events in Cincinnati to do so. Excellent. Yeah. It's a great facility. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been Poetry Spotlight, a production of the Ohio Poetry Association. Please follow the OPA on Twitter at Ohio Poetry and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Ohio Poetry. Visit ohiopoetryassociation.org for more information. And thank you, Debbie and Patricia, both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.